and you picked a, a doozy of a day to join us uh, as a church family. Last week, I issued a bold challenge, both through uh, here from here on the platform and also through an email that I sent out to our church family. Uh, to make a commitment, and I'm issuing it again, and to those who are online, I encourage you and urge you, if, if you're still back at home and you're waiting to, to rejoin us, I'm asking you to, to make the commitment to, to step forward and join us for the next six weeks solid, perfect attendance for six weeks, because we need a, re- a revival. It's oftentimes tempting to gather together as believers in Christ, as people in our world, and people ask, how are you doing? How are things going? And our answer is just a quick, easy, fine. And there's no better place to do that or easier place sometimes to do that than in church. And as a church, especially in the world that we live in, when we know that we have guests come together and coming to join us, we have people that are watching some uh, all the way in Africa. I know we've got one sister that joins us each week in Africa And we have people all over the world that are watching from the outside in. It can be difficult to be honest. But the fact of the matter is, we've been talking about this among the church leadership, the staff, that our church is at a point where we are in desperate need of a renewal of our heart and of our affection for Christ. And so this five-week commitment, six-week commitment that I've laid out for our congregation is to bring ourselves to the place where we position ourselves in front of the Lord and focus our attention specifically on the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very first core value that we have as a church family is that we believe that the gospel transforms lives. And this story arc that you can see behind me is the, kind of the pattern that we're going to be taking over the next several weeks as we look, because all of the Bible tells one story, God's story of his passionate pursuit of you, from Genesis to Revelation is the story of how God created all things, how our sin broke God's good design, how God in his infinite love chose not to leave us in our brokenness, but instead set out on a mission to rescue us from our darkness and is in the process of transforming all things and bringing them to restoration. It's looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, refocusing our attention on Jesus and Jesus alone, that is going to bring revival to our hearts. What is revival? It's the restoration of life to something that was alive but is now dead. In our southern culture, we have a tendency, when we hear the word revival, we think about this planned tent event where we bring in a really great band and an outside speaker who's going to spit and stomp and do all kinds of other things. And even in a revival, which is something that is to breathe life back into that which is dead, which assumes that a revival is first and foremost for Christians, we even manage to make revivals all about getting lost people saved because heaven forbid that we need the gospel ourselves. And we have this idea of what revival is, but I think that we underestimate what revival is. When we witness a true revival, even in our physical world, in our lives together, it is an extremely violent and disturbing process. The closest image that we have to revival in this world is when someone is in desperate need of life-saving measures such as CPR. It's someone who is alive, who has lost that life, either because of a heart attack or drowning. And I don't know about you, I've not had the opportunity, and praise the Lord that I haven't, I've not been in a situation where I've actually physically, visibly experienced or seen someone receiving CPR. 
My first-hand, actually second-hand experience of anybody receiving CPR has been on television. And television drastically underrepresents the violent process that CPR really is. It wasn't until a few years ago that I went through a CPR certification class when I realized what the purpose of CPR is. A person who needs CPR is someone whose heart has stopped working. And the heart stops working, so does the lungs. In CPR, you must become the person's heartbeat, forcing the blood to circulate through their bodies. This means that what you see on TV when they're just doing this little thing right here, that's nothing. You have to press hard enough on that person's chest that you are simulating the heart beating forcing the blood through the body. And in doing so, the force that is necessary oftentimes breaks ribs. It's a violent process. The body flails. The purpose of of breathing, restorative breathing into a person's body and into their lungs, the rescue breathing is not just to watch their cheeks puff out. You're supposed to breathe hard enough that that person's lungs inflate. You're supposed, to be in st- you're supposed to be putting breath into their lungs because the purpose of pumping their heart is to send oxygen to the organs that need it to survive. And in most cases, to bring that person back to life, what we need is an electric shock that restarts their heart. Or with drowning victims, we need to expel what is in the person's lungs. It is an extremely violent and disturbing process. And how... Flippantly, we run around saying, oh, we need revival. And we expect revival in God's church to be some kind of gentle experience. But the, pur- the purpose of revival in the church is to expel what is drowning us out and to restore life that is missing. Just like water being purged from the lungs, our sin and our idols have to be exposed and purged from our systems. And God's breath, God's life has to be breathed back into us as individuals, as families, and as a corporate body. And when sin comes out, brothers and sisters, it's a messy process. And that's oftentimes where people fall short of the revival process, is when sin starts coming to the surface, we get embarrassed, we get ashamed, we're afraid to have those conversations, especially those public conversations. So believe me, there's no one more uncomfortable this morning about talking about our church's need for revival than me, your pastor. The one who's supposed to be leading and teaching. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're not where God wants you to be, that partly falls on my shoulder. And so I'm asking you to be honest with me as I'm honest with you over the next five to six weeks. To position yourself in humility that we might be revived. Stanley Voke in his book, Personal Revival, says this, Revival begins with God when God begins with his people. Any study of revivals will show that spiritual awakening has begun when Christians, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, have come to the sinner's place and begun to repent. But he asks, how are we to be brought to this place of repentance? And the answer is by a new vision of holiness of God. When you've lost something in a dark room, you have a couple of options. 
You can continue to fumble around in the darkness on your own and in your own strength to try to find what it is that has been missing or to fix what it is that has been broken. That's where we're at as a church. That's where many churches are at today. Something is broken, but our, our eyes and our spiritual vision is blinded by our sin. That's one of the effects of sin. Sin blinds us from its presence, blinds us from its significance, blinds us from a way forward. And we can continue to try to struggle in our own strength to fix whatever it's wrong, it is that's wrong, or we can have a really great moment of clarity by turning on the light. When you've lost something in the darkness and you've broken something in the darkness, it only makes sense that if it's desperate and you need it, turn on a light. And in that moment, darkness flees. And at that point, you are able to finally see and better assess and address the situation. We're people that are fumbling around in the darkness, disappointed and frustrated that all of our efforts are not bearing fruit. I've had questions again and again. What's going on with us? Why is it that such and such a church down the street is seeing such explosive growth? Why is this happening? Why do guests show up one week and not come back? What's the problem? And we can spend our life asking the questions, what's the problem? And we can go on an idol hunt, we can go on a sin hunt, we can go on a problem-finding mission, or we can do something infinitely better. We can stop our efforts to fix things. And we can take our eyes off of the problems and what it is that has grasped our attention, and we can simply look to Jesus. We can turn on the light, and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will shine into the crevices of our lives and of our churches and of our homes, of our families, of our marriages. And the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will send the darkness fleeing, and all that is wrong and in the wrong places will be made right by the grace of the gospel. Which is why we're going to spend the next five weeks looking from Genesis to Revelation at the gospel of Jesus Christ in prayerful expectation that as we refocus on Christ and on his gospel, he will begin working in our hearts to expose within us as individuals, as families, as a congregation, as small groups, what is missing, what is broken, what is wrong. And then lead us to the place where by his grace, through repentance, we will see ourselves restored. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't start with your problems or mine. It's easy when we're talking about a gospel presentation that we jump right in, right? Where do we go? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We start with man's problem. The problem with that is that's not where the Bible starts. If you want a recipe for a man-centered gospel, start with man, even his problems. The Bible starts with creation. God's good design. And we find that in Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be reading from verse 4 down through the end of the chapter. The Bible says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed all around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds and of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to, them, to, the, to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we spend the next few minutes with our eyes focused on your word, I pray that you would expose within us the good design that you installed into the world from its very foundation. And that in doing that, Heavenly Father, you would give us a greater vision of your good design for our lives. And as we behold your good design for our lives, Heavenly Father, may you then expose in us and to us the ways that we continue to fall short of your glory and your good design. Because it will be, Heavenly Father, when we see our failure, when we see our fallenness, that then, Father God, we are aware of a problem, and only then will we be able to position ourselves before you as those who are in need of grace and mercy. You are a God who generously gives those things to us. If we would but position ourselves as David did, as those who are in poor and in need. So lead us more deeply into a relationship with you for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My wife and I, Sarah Lauren and I, started this past couple of weeks asking our boys certain questions in the form of a catechism. If you're unfamiliar with what a catechism is, a catechism is simply a training tool for small children. 
It's a tool that has been used by Christians for centuries to train children in the essential truths of what we believe as Christians. And it takes the form of a series of questions and their answers. And over the last couple of weeks, we've gotten up to question number six. And questions four and question five specifically relate to our topic of conversation this morning. Question four asks our children, how and why did God create us? The answer is God created us, male and female, in his image for his glory. The next question is, what else did God create? The answer to that is, God created all things and all his creation was very good. In Genesis chapter 1, Moses sings a beautiful song that instructs us in God's creation of the universe. Throughout that song, there's the repeated phrase, as God is finished with each creative aspect of the world, he repeats the phrase, it is good. Until he ends chapter 1 in verse 31 with this declaration, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. God created all things, and all his creation was very good. The question is, what made God's world very good? Is that it was strong and that everything in his creation was healthy and that everything in his creation functioned? I think one important aspect, especially an aspect that's intimately tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that what made God's creation very good was that it fulfilled God's purposes. It met God's creative expectations. It functioned according to God's design. And something that was integral to that design was a beautiful harmony that existed in God's creation. A harmony that characterized everything that happened in his world. And that harmony is linked with humanity. Genesis chapter 1 flows towards the creation of man. Day 6, just before God is finished. And the last thing that God does in Genesis chapter 1 before he rests is create man. Genesis chapter 1 flows, climbs a mountain, if you will, and the apex of that mountain is God's creation of man and woman. Genesis chapter 2, however, is like being on the top of that mountain and coming down the other side. Genesis chapter 2 flows from man to creation. As God starts with man and places him inside of a garden that God then customizes for his care, and for his existence. And within this garden, this very good design of man was to experience a very good relationship with God, with God's creation, and with his counterparts. One of the first things that we see in this passage of Scripture is that humans were created by God to exist in harmony with God. Humans were created by God to exist in a perfect and intimate relationship with him. And this is on display throughout these verses. Something that's very subtle, but something that is right at the very beginning in verse 4 is the name that Moses chooses to use in reference to God throughout Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. If you look in verse 4, it says, "...the day that the Lord God had made the earth and heavens." That's a very unusual combination of names. God there is the Hebrew word Elohim. Lord there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Elohim is the word of God, high and holy and sovereign and above all things. Yahweh is the name of God, the covenant-keeping God. 
who redeems and rescues his people, who comes to them in their need and meets their need. Nowhere else in Genesis do we see Moses combining these two names, but throughout Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, some 20 different times, every time that God is referred to, he is the Lord God, God Yahweh. The far-off God who has drawn near to his people in covenant. The only place that God is not referred to this way, which we will see next week, is in the temptation when Satan speaks of him. And when Eve responds, and then and only then, is he only God who is far off and far away. But throughout this passage of Scripture, we see God as the holy, sovereign God of the universe, who is nevertheless the covenant-making and keeping God who draws near He is a God who draws near to lift us up, to set us free. He's a personal, knowable, loving, and faithful God. And this intimate God, this personal, knowable God, is the one who creates us. And he doesn't create us in the way that he created everything else. Instead, we see that when no bush of the field was yet in the land, God comes down and he forms the man from the dust of the ground. We see this picture almost of God kneeling into the mud, and with his own hands, he creates this man. And then he does something unique and something special. He breathes his own life into the man. In verse 7, we see that the man, by the breath of God, became a living creature. In verse 19, when God brings the animals to Adam, they're all referred to as living creatures. It's the same thing. Same words. What makes man unique and distinct is not the fact that there is life inside of us. What makes us distinct is the fact that there's God's life inside of us. That God chose in our creation to breathe his breath into us, to impart to us something of himself as he forms us and fills our lungs with his life. There is a part of us as image bearers of God and also bearers of the breath of God that sets us apart and sets us towards God as something unique for a unique relationship with him. But beyond just that we are image bearers filled with God's breath, we also see that God has good purposes for humanity. He's not creating this world for for Adam to sit back in in luxury and, and have this hands and foot service all over him. Instead, God placed him in the garden for what reason? To work it and to keep it. Verse 15. Hate to break it to you guys. Work's not a consequence of sin. Work existed before sin. The difference we'll see is how difficult the work was. God never created us to sit idle, to sit back, but instead, God created us with a unique purpose, a purpose in which we are to fulfill the Genesis 1 creation mandate that says to care for and to to exercise dominion over creation, and we're to do that in the way that we care for and keep the world. God gave us a purpose, a purpose that is to represent him and to exercise his authority in the world. That's what makes us such this intimate relationship with the Lord. But last of all, we also see God is not just a God who creates and breathes and who leaves, but God actually develops an ongoing relationship with this person. We'll see in Genesis chapter 3 next week that God comes to the garden in the cool of the day as was his pattern. There is a fellowship and a friendship between God and man, and one of the ways that that is most clearly expressed in these verses is that God speaks directly to the man. 
That's the significance of verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. There's a lot of people that come to Genesis chapter 1, and for much of my life when I came, to, I'm sorry, to Genesis chapter 2, this verse confused me. Why would God create this good world and then give this one rule that has the ability to mess everything up? Why would God put this command here? Because it is the, the Achilles heel of humanity, if you will, when they disobey this. So why would God create this command that could mess everything up in the first place? And it was several years back as I was studying the gospel and studying Genesis that all of a sudden it dawned on me the reason God gave a command is because he could. Man who is to exercise dominion and authority, who is to image God before the world and stand as his representative needs a constant reminder that he's not just someone who has authority, he's someone who is under authority. And so it is his obligation to obey his God, to listen and to obey the commands of God. And we live in a world that sees commands, rules, laws as obstacles to freedom. But the truth of the matter is, that's not what rules, commands, and laws are meant to do. C.S. Lewis gives a picture. Imagine children, if you've, if you've seen pictures of England and maybe the, the white cliffs of Dover, right? And it's just what you could easily walk off the cliff and you could fall to your doom. He asks the question, imagine that there's a group of children playing at the top of that cliff. Are they more free to play in that area with or without a fence? If there's a fence there, they're more free to play because there's a barrier between them and death. But if that fence is not there, they're vulnerable, they're in danger. God's rules and commands throughout Scripture are never a burden. They're a blessing to God's people. And our relationship to God's commands, God's word, says something about our relationship to him. And so a point of application out of this first notion that we are meant to exist in harmony with God is that we must be a people who hear and obey the commands of God. From the very beginning, God gave his people commands. We are to be a people who hear God's commands and obey God's commands. The question number four says that God created male and female in his own image to glorify him. Question number six comes back to our kids. How do we glorify God? The answer is by loving him and by obeying his commands and law. Commands and law is not just the means that we, that we glorify him. The commands and laws is the way that we express our love for God, our trust in him. If you, if you trust someone and they tell you to do something, you will respond in obedience because you love them and you're in a relationship with them. And we are to be people, men and women, characterized by a love of, an understanding of, and a desire to obey the commands of God. Trusting that God's commands are not burdensome, but instead are there as barriers to death and instruments of life. This is true of every single one of us, but I want to speak directly for a moment to the men in this room. Gentlemen, I want you to listen to me. 
The reason I want to talk to you specifically is because I believe in a very real way this passage of Scripture speaks to you specifically. I'll talk to the ladies next week. Sorry that you don't get a heads up, and they do. Ladies, that's not an excuse for you to not come back next week, okay? But gentlemen, I want you to listen to something. I want you to notice something. When God gives this command, Adam is the only human in existence. The man is the one who received the command first. Because it was God's intention that that man would then communicate, train up, teach, protect this command to the woman, to his children, and to society. God's intention from the very beginning was that men would take the lead in their homes, the church. And I believe that many of the problems faced by churches today is because we have a generation of impotent men, disobedient and unfamiliar with the commands and law of God, riding the coattails of the faithfulness of the women. And we should be ashamed. Gentlemen, we will not be a spirit-filled church without spirit-filled men. We won't be a life-filled church without men who love and live the word of God. The first step to renewal and revival is to prayerfully consider, brothers and sisters, how far we've drifted from God how far we've fallen from his commands and position ourselves in front of him that we might submit again to his design for our lives. If you walk away with nothing else in this time, SCBC family, because I'm going to move through the next two points pretty quickly because this is the most significant point, our harmony with God. If you walk away from this sermon with absolutely nothing else, please walk away with this with one commitment. If you're here today and you can't see problems in our church, You're wrong or I'm wrong. And my ask is that you start praying, God, either change his mind, mine, or that God would change yours and give you eyes to see what's wrong and where we need to go. Somebody here needs to change. We all need to be humble enough to position ourselves before the Lord, and we need to say, God, open our eyes to see how far we have drifted from our relationship with you, our design, your design for our lives and for our church. Would you expose our sin as we behold your holiness and lead us in your grace in the days ahead? That's my one ask. If you don't listen to anything else the rest of the sermon, here's my one ask. Start praying now that God will open your eyes, open our eyes, open the congregation's eyes. As we behold Jesus Christ, may he change us. And then may he lead us in in his grace. But quickly, humans weren't merely existed or created to exist in harmony with God. We were also created to exist in harmony with the world. We see this intimate relationship between man and his environment within within these verses. The very fact that Adam was created from the dust of the earth, that he is a a creature tied to this world. His form and his substance comes from this world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his commentary says, the Adam who rests on the newly created earth is so closely and intimately bound up with the ground on which Adam lies that Adam is, even in this still dreaming state, a most singular and wonderful piece of earth, but even so still a piece of earth. 
our bodies given to us by God are not just something that we're going to put off and disappear. We'll see, and we come to the conclusion of this restoration, that we are created as physical beings filled with God's Spirit. That is the definition of our identity and our wholeness. God is not going to leave us, abandon our bodies, but instead you'll see Jesus returns in the end, and what happens? You get your body back. Our bodies were created by God. Our bodies were brought out of this earth. Our bodies are tied to this earth. Second, tied to our connection with the earth is the purpose we've been given by God for the earth. Genesis chapter 1, God gave what I said earlier, what is the creation mandate, that man and woman together are to exercise dominion over the creation. And in chapter 2, we see him placing man in the garden to work it and to keep it. We were given the good responsibility to care for God's good world by God's good design. And as we care for God's good world, we see that the world then in turn responds and provides for our care. God places them in this garden and gives them every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God created a world in which, and an environment, a garden in which we would live in a relationship. As we tend it, as we care for it, as we keep it, it will provide for us sustenance. God's first command, if you'll notice, is tied to eating. It's tied to food. Why? Because from the very beginning, we were creatures created to be sustained by something else. We were never autonomous. God didn't create us to be able to walk out into the world like with, with photosynthesis in our skins and all the green cells that we can walk out and the sun would shine on us and we just get to generate our own energy. We have to eat to live. And so God commanded this, give, gave this command to not eat of one specific tree because God again has authority over us. Our life is derived from him. And Adam is given the authority to exercise dominion not only in the way that he cares for the creation, but also in the way that he exercises that care and that, that shepherding, if you will, over the creation. We see this as Adam is exercising his authority when God brings all of the animals before him. And what happens? What Adam na- gives, the name that Adam gives becomes that creature's name. That's an exercise of authority. That's an exercise of relationship. That's an exercise of care that Adam gives not only over the plants and over the trees, but over the creatures. The world then cares for him. God creates this environment that is not just self-sustaining, but is dependent. So as a point of application, brothers and sisters, just briefly, this world is the world that when God created, he's declared it to be very good. It's the world that we will see by the end of our time together that God is working to redeem and restore. It's a world that God loves and cares for. What superseded sin and everything else was a call and a command from God that we would care for and and tend and exercise God's shepherding, keeping, caring authority over this earth. So whether you agree with the language or not and the politicization of caring for our world, That's not a liberal notion. That came from God. 
God commanded us to take care of the earth, and look how we are abusing it. We use it for ourselves without any care of God's good design and purpose for it. And we need to be a people who love God's commands and live God's commands. And one of those most important ones is that we care for the world that is our home. The last thing that we see is the humans were created to exist in harmony with one another. Remember I said in Genesis chapter 1, God repeatedly says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, and what do we read? It's not good. And what is not good is that the man is left alone. What's not good is the man is there and he has no partner. We had a great need, a need that only God could fill, and that only God could fill perfectly. And so in seeing this need, he wants to then awaken Adam to this need. And so he parades all of the animals before him. And we can almost see this image of them walking by Adam two by two as he names them. And there's this longing that comes out of Adam as he realizes there's not a counterpart for me. I'm here by myself. And the Bible says that there, is none, there was no helper that was created that was suitable for Adam. So what does God do? God puts him to sleep. And God then creates a helper suitable for Adam. As Adam was given creation mandate, as Adam was given the, 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 the need to, or the, the, the design and the purpose to tend for the garden and create it, he needed a helper. And so God provided that helper in woman. Now, ladies, real quick, I want to just build you up a little bit because this is so special. We live in a world, and gentlemen, I want to just correct you. If you think that your wife is here to be your helper, your servant, you're the one who just, you're, you're the general and she's the foot person and she just does what you tell her everywhere else and anything time, that's not what this says. The word that's used here for a helper suitable is a very specific Hebrew word that only appears two other ways in the Old Testament. First, it's a helper in the sense that it is reinforcements that are absolutely necessary for an army to win a battle. If this help doesn't show up, we lose. The most often what time, or the, uh, the, the way that this word is used most often in the Old Testament is a direct reference to God. The helper suitable, who swoops in and provides the assistance and the strength that is necessary for victory. Guys, the women, our sisters, the daughters of God that are around us, they're not just appendages to our purpose and our body. They are integral and essential for it. Eve is taken not from the dust of the ground, not from creation itself. Instead, she is taken from the very form and substance of man, out of his side, that she might have all that made him unique, all that made him significant, all that made him and gave him an intimate relationship with God. Women are equal in their value and their worth before God, period. She's created from this substance, and from then their relationship we see children. And as the family expands and grows, we see interfamily relationships. And as those build up, they build into communities. Communities build into nations. Nations come around the world. Everything hinges upon this one relationship. It's man and woman coordinate with one another and work together. It's co-equal in value before God. But as we'll see next week, 
God created them equal in value and worth. He created them complementary in how they are to interact and fulfill God's command with unique roles for each individual. This relationship between this man and this woman as they come together was going to be a relationship that would grow and supersede everything else. The language that is here, we've softened it a little bit in our English that says that for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother. It's really the word forsake. It's the same word, similar word that Jesus used in the New Testament when he says any man who does not hate his father and his mother cannot truly love me. This intimate relationship that is meant as they come together, this one flesh union between them is not just just talking in a sexual relationship. It is an intimacy, emotional, spiritual, relational, verbal, that the man and the woman are to relate with one another in this deep-seated way. And that harmony is to flow from our relationship, husband to wife, to father, to son, mother, to daughter, parents, to children, and across our community because every child of every human being comes from this one relationship and carries with it the perfect, the the image-bearing reflection of God and inherent value and worth and design. So how do we apply this? Going back, gentlemen, specifically to to you. Women are not meant to be our possession. They're our partner for the glory of God. And in a pornographic culture filled with images of toxic masculinity, the sons of God are meant to be different. We are meant to be the ones who love, provide, cherish, care for, train up, protect from every enemy. There should be no safer place for a vulnerable woman than the church of Jesus Christ. There should be no safer place for a child than the church of Jesus Christ. There should be no safer place for the weak and the wounded, the vulnerable and the frail than the church of Jesus Christ, than around men of God. And it's when we, as men and as women, as sons and daughters of God, stand up and rise to God's good design for how we are to treat and love one another. The second greatest command in the Bible is to love your neighbor as yourself. As you would love your own flesh. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. That's what we're called to. And in doing so, we reflect that perfect harmony that God created us to live in. If there's anything that unites cultures across history, it's story. You can go to any culture in the world and you can find storytellers. People have passed along truth. They've, they've passed along history. They've passed it along in story. The gospel is the story of God for you and for me. And every good story starts with that phrase, once upon a time. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are the once upon a time of the Bible. Once upon a time, there was a perfect creation. Once upon a time, there was a place and a time when man existed in a perfect and spotless and unhindered relationship with the God who created him. Once upon a time, there was a time and there was a place where God spoke to man face to face and walked with him in the cool of the day and in the garden. 
Once upon a time, there was a place and there were, that men and women were able to interact with the animals around them, and they had a great relationship and fellowship. There, there was no fear. Once upon a time, there was a place where the world responded in joy and for the glory of God to the hand of man upon it. There's a longing inside of every single heart for that. You see it in every child's story. Every fairy tale is a declaration of a once upon a time and a longing for this. Think about it. In a fairy tale, you've got little boys who hang around and talk with bears and lions. You've got little girls who dance with trees and sing with flowers. You've got a world that hears and responds. It's a world where evil might exist, but where the good guys always win in the end. Because there's a longing given to us by God for a harmonious existence in this world that we cannot find. And as we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that J-curve that I showed you earlier, we're going to give some notes on how it is that you can identify not only where you are on that J-curve, but where people are in their lives. And so when you're having conversations with your friends, or you're having conversation even in your own heart, and you have that notion that it's not supposed to be this way, the world's not supposed to be this broken, my life is not supposed to be this hard, there's truth in that. It's our heart's declaration that Genesis chapter 2 is true. We long for a world where we're near to one another, we're near to the world around us, we're ultimately near to our Creator, who was once so near that He was able to breathe His breath into our lungs. That God, as we will see, who is high and who is holy, is the one who ultimately chose to draw near to us even in our sin that he might rescue us from our sin. And we'll see in the weeks to come how sin affects that relationship, how it affects us, how it affects our world. But most of all, what we're going to learn about is God's grand story of rescue and restoration for the world that he declared from the very beginning to be very good. So where are you today? Are you living in a hunger and a desire for God's good design? Are you living in obedience to God's good design? If not, I would invite you today to get on your knees before God and say, God, would you forgive me? God stands ready to grant us mercy and grace for the ways that we have rejected his good design and created designs of our own, idols of our own. The very first step to revival and renewal is the willingness to position ourselves before God as those in need. What we need is a radical transformation of what we understand to be good in our lives. So I would invite you this morning to pray that prayer before the Lord. God, would you show me my heart? Would you show me the ways that I have rejected your good design and created something different instead? And would you trust the Holy Spirit then? Would you spend time over the next week looking forward to Genesis chapter 3 by reading that, but also waiting in the presence of God? God, would you show me the ways that I have fallen short of your glory by falling short of your good design in my marriage, in my home, in my habitat, but ultimately with you? 
Would you go before the Lord and pray that prayer right now? And I'll come back and close this in a moment.